I'm Jeff Sickinga, Executive Director of the Ashbrook Center, and this is The American Idea, coming to you from Peter Schramm's library in Ashland, Ohio. In this podcast, we explore America's crisis in civic education. Too many people today don't understand the history and principles that make us Americans. So we're here to explore America's history and principles and what they mean for today, what we can learn from them, and how we can restore them to their rightful place in our hearts and minds. We think it's the most important thing we can do as Americans to keep our experiment in self-government alive. So thank you for joining us in this important conversation. You can learn more about Ashbrook and the work we're doing with students, teachers, and citizens at ashbrook.org. want to welcome everyone to this episode of The American Idea. Today we're going to be talking about a, a contemporary topic, one that is urgently, immediately upon the United States. One that is we see in the news almost every day, and that has been uh, an important issue for a long time, but now, as I say, has become urgent in a way that perhaps it wasn't before. And that is the United States relationship with China. And to join me in that conversation today is a, a, a friend of Ashbrook, a, an Ashbrooker herself, <laughs> Rebecca Heinrichs. Uh, Rebecca is senior fellow at the Hudson Institute and also their director of the Keystone Defense Initiative. Uh, she specializes in national security issues at Hudson. Um, she's also uh, among many of her appointments, one of uh, a few civilians on a commission for the United States Department of Defense on our strategic posture in the world. So Rebecca is both a think tank person, but also directly and intimately connected with the United States military and our, our strategic thinking in the United States military. She received her MA from the United States Naval War College, where she won the Director's Award in, for excellence in her studies. And I'm proud to say that she received her bachelor's degree here at Ashland University from the Ashbrook Center. She was an Ashbrook scholar and one of the very best Ashbrook scholars we've ever had. I can say that to her now, now that she's graduated. <laughs> <laughs> um, and we're privileged to have her serve on the board of advisors of the Ashbrook Center. So she's not only uh, a scholar and has that tradition, but is now lending her time and talent to helping to govern the Ashbrook Center as we move forward. You, you probably, those of you who know Rebecca also, I'm sure, have seen and heard her on national media outlets like CNN, Fox News, and Fox Business. When people want a serious, thoughtful opinion on American national security issues, they turn to Rebecca. Rebecca, thanks so much for joining us today. That is so kind. Thank you so much, Jeff. I'm thrilled to be doing this for Ashbrook. Um, it was my my time as an Ashbrook scholar uh, is precious to me as I look back over my my studies and how um, different parts of my education were were formative and um, my most formative uh, ways I think about the world and about the United States happened when I was an Ashbrook scholar. So um, it's a privilege to be able to do this now and to to can to continue doing everything that I can now, um, not only for U.S. national security, but but in particular, you got to you got to work on. Um, the things that make this country great and worth protecting, and that's the business of the Ashbrook program. So thank you for inviting me to do this today. You're, just today, you have a piece out in National Review, and I, if I can start by just reading a couple of sentences from it, I'd say they're fairly provocative sentences, but I'll read them and let our listeners decide. You're right. 
China is outgunning the U.S., engaging in reckless operational provocations and scorning U.S. diplomatic overtures. China is preparing for war. The, the U.S. must urgently prepare for war with China to prevent one. Uh, that's pretty stark. Uh, when we had Secretary Mike Pompeo here, he was asked and gave his thoughts, what's the single greatest threat to the United States? And he said, according to him, there's only one threat to the United States that can actually change the way Americans live their lives. And he said, it's the Chinese Communist Party. Do you agree with that assessment? I do. I do. And in the way that I um, have been thinking about it and explaining it to people is, you know, what what makes China such a uh, a huge threat? What makes any country a threat to the United States? And there's two parts. It's their desire to harm the United States. And there are all kinds of state and non-state actors that desire to harm the United States. But then it's also their ability to harm the United States. And it's the combination of those two things that make for a very toxic um, problem uh, for us to deal with. And so, of course, North Korea is a problem for the United States, a serious problem, um, a very deadly problem with their nuclear program and their desire to, to kind of coerce and compel the United States in their particular region. But they don't pose anywhere um, the kind of threat that China poses to the United States. And that's because of the size of China's economy and how deeply uh, we are uh, intertwined and reliant um, in various ways with the Chinese um, and the size, scope and kinds of, of weapon systems that they have been investing in um, in their military. Let's talk a little bit more about that last part, because I'm, I'm, I'm curious to know your thoughts on what exactly is the threat that China poses? Is it an economic threat? Is it a diplomatic threat? Is it a military threat, a political threat? Is it all of those wrapped together? What is it exactly? It is all of those wrapped together, unfortunately. Um, but, the, but, but, but where countries really derive their power, their, their ability to make other countries do what, what they want them to do is their, their, their ability to um, create incentives and disincentives financially and uh, brute force, power, military power. And, and, and in those two categories, China has it <laughs> um, in huge amounts. And, and so when, when you think about, okay, so what's the threat to the United States? You know, the United States, really since the, since the Second World War, um, and then through navigating through the Cold War, uh, and, and really as a, you know, living in the post-Cold War era, we've been living in a world in which the United States is the preeminent military and economic power. And that has served Americans really well. Um, it served us well because not only because um, things that uh, we benefit from global trade, I mean, it's the United States and our and, and the West, the, the free world, broadly speaking. I don't mean just democracies, but mostly democratic systems within that that category um, benefit from uh, the peace and security of global commons, the oceans, air, you know, the international uh, airways. And, and, and so you have free and prosperous trade. It's not just that, though. It's the way we even think about what is fair and honest trade practices. And, and all of that has been the version of what we believe is right and good and fair. And, and because we've been the preeminent power um, economically and militarily. 
Um, and now what has happened is China, um, I, I don't want to get too far into your next question, but, but China now has the ability to contest the United States in a very serious way, um, economically, with the massive market that they have, um, but, but also militarily. They can start, so when we say free and open, um, you know, international waters, how much trade and commerce goes through Asia, China can say, well, no, we disagree. We disagree with your version of what is what is fair and even what are actual uh, boundaries, national boundaries that we recognize. And they can compel and coerce the United States that way, using their military to threaten off major access economically that would that could be devastating to the American family. Um, and so it puts us in a hard in a hard spot relative to what the Chinese uh, would want us to do or not do. So so let's talk a little bit about the way that we think about China. If what you're saying is true, that they have this enormous economic power that's been growing and, and they seem to be, as you say, investing in military in a way that is designed to be able to allow them to project that force in ways that could disrupt uh, America and uh, other countries in the world, for example, in commerce and trade. What's the best way for us to think about China? Is it, and, and I know this has shifted since 1972 and thinking of Nixon's, of course, trip to China to open up American Chinese relations. Is it as a strategic partner? Is it as a strategic rival or is it as an enemy? I, I tend to use the word rival um, adversary. I think an adversary uh, is definitely what what I believe the Chinese Chinese public officials are pushing us into the corner to simply come to that conclusion. And, and it's important to be able to identify things accurately because then you can more clearly articulate what your responses and your policy should be. Um, in, in some ways, they've been competitor, but competitor is kind of the phrase that the Trump administration used. Uh, you think of great power competition, we're competing with the Chinese, but especially um, over the last several years during the Biden administration, uh, with combination of just the rhetoric from Chinese officials towards the United States, blaming the United States uh, for, for COVID. Um, they're still doing that. They're still blaming the US Army for that, um, making things up whole cloth, um, accusing the United States of all kinds of horrible things that, that we haven't done. Um, but also, the you know, it's not just the direction of their military. They are now flexing those military muscles by um, threatening and sort of practicing invasions of Taiwan. Um, they've, they've been flying within tens of feet of U.S. military aircraft, of our aircraft flying in international airspace. The, PL, the PLA have been the People's Liberation Army, the military part of the of the Chinese um, uh, government ha have been acting. I mean, I would even say, I mean, provocative doesn't kind of go far enough. It's reckless. There was one Biden official, I thought, very colorfully kind of, I'm going to paraphrase now, but describe them as essentially like a, a, a drunk driver driving around a schoolyard. It's so it's so reckless that could they're really tempting the United States to say enough. I mean, we're not going to tolerate this. And so they're they're directly challenging us militarily. I mean, of course, the Chinese spy balloon that flew across the United States, that's a military aircraft um, that had a payload on that we still don't have full understanding. We, the American people, sort of in the public space um, about what that was, but it was directly, they don't have a, a hard line between 
what is civilian, you know, what is non-military and military. It's um, they have this fusion between the two in direct service to the military. So, um, so they're a rival. They're a rival, and they're an adversary. And um, you know, the United States needs to, I think, get over the fact that this is just kind of the situation we're in, and 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 then our policies then should reflect that more accurately. And that's the only way you're going to get to a position where you can kind of um, stabilize the situation rather than what I think we're just, it's just getting worse over time um, and headed for a, a really big problem. Okay. So if you, if you think that we, we used to consider them or the Trump administration used to consider them as competitor, as you said, and now we've moved to the word adversary um, competitor, you know, is a kind of neutral term, right? We're mm-hmm. in competition with them and we're each seeking this, a certain goal and, and we're in competition with them to get that adversary to me suggests that they have a goal that is fundamentally antagonistic to our interests. Is that true? Yeah. And if it's true, what is their goal? So, um, and th- this is this is where you begin to have analysts kind of disagreeing. It's much it's much easier to empirically look at capabilities, and reasonable people can look at their capabilities and say, yes, this is what they have. But then to, to try to get into the mind of adversaries, it's much harder. And of course, those things can change. They're dynamic. They're not. They've got agency. So depending on what we do, they can kind of change their mind and do different things. But um, my my true so I do strategy and and foreign policy sort of generally looking at the direction of of power politics. Um, then I have to know enough about the way some of these countries think and operate to make sense of it all. Um, but my true China experts who have spent time in China and who speak Chinese and who have read their scholarship and have really been tracking the rise of Xi Jinping. I mean, they would tell me Matt Pottinger was the architect of the Trump foreign policy towards China on the National Security Council. And he says they are highly motivated by uh, Marxist-Leninism, that Xi Jinping himself is a Marxist-Leninist. And so um, they view the world in, 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 from, 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 that, from that way, that they, they, they really truly believe that with Chinese characteristics. And so there is no higher good. There is no higher source of understanding of where good and right conduct come from than the party, than the Chinese Communist Party and at the top, Xi Jinping. And and so they fundamentally reject this idea of uh, geopolitical pluralism that eat national sovereignty and self-determination. Of course, from an American perspective, the, the, the dignity endowed by God of the human person these are not ideas that the Chinese Communist Party embraces. In fact, they they reject them as silly and stupid. A lot of their propaganda lately that I've been tracking, because um, they 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 engage with me sometimes on social media too, is they're trying to demonstrate that actually democracy has failed. That democracy is slow and bureaucratic and incompetent. Look at us fight. Look at the Americans fight and disagree about all these things. And um, they're immoral and depraved and terrible. And and look at us, we're efficient, harmonized, um, make no mistakes, and that our system, and in fact, it's it's very racial, very racial. Um, the, 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 the Han Chinese view, um, their view of ethnicity of Ch- Han Chinese as the pure race too. So it's they they see themselves um and their and their system of government as superior and all in service to the Chinese Communist Party. So um, can I say then that that's interesting because uh, if Xi really is a Marxist and that the Chinese Communist Party actually turned out to be communists, um, 
is it a kind of communism when we think back of the cold war we thought of communism and particularly soviet communism as imperialist attempting to overthrow democratic countries or even non-democratic countries and install marxist regimes in order to spread marxist ideology everywhere and, and eventually have a world that's dominated by marxist leninism it is the is chinese communism imperialist in that way or is it centered just on making sure China is and remains itself communist? It's a great question. The way that I think about it and the way that I've seen them behave. So for, let's take something that normal listeners here would, would um, that would they would make sense of and could, could um, recall. I mean, why is it that China censors the NBA? It's, it just seems, it seems so petty sometimes. So that, you know, the NBA goes and plays in China, but but they're not allowed to say anything bad about their 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 concentration camps where they have um, Uyghur Muslims. They're, you know, they can't say anything about um, Taiwan being a sovereign entity and certainly not a nation state. Nobody can really say anything negative about China, and and so it's their censorship is very heavy, even for non-Chinese nationals just doing business in China. In fact, they even want to control the message of their Chinese nationals living outside of China. So we've seen um, evidences of, you know, Chinese students who are on visas um, here sitting in the United States. They'll post something on social media, critical of Xi Jinping, and they'll get FaceTimed from a member of the Chinese Communist Party, essentially a not so veiled threat that their parents are going to be arrested if they don't take down that social media post. So, um, so I use those examples to say it is not purely sort of a just let us be Chinese communists and leave us alone. You, you know, you used to think of um, sort of the American idea that we want the world to be safe for democracy. You know, we don't, you don't all necessarily have to be democracies, but we want the world to be safe for democracies. I think sort of Xi Jinping's idea of what he wants is he wants China to be the preeminent power and he wants his thumbprint to, to, to uh, to go on to other nations, international organizations that are friendly to and promote the values of the Chinese Communist Party. So it's not the same kind of sort of overthrowing democracies, that sort of messy view that we that we are more familiar with in the past. It is a much more slower, careful, patient, but still uh, suffocating as an American. Um, uh, in terms of their total rejection of free speech, free exercise of religion. I mean, there's, you know, they, all of those, they're very hostile, it's antithetical to, to the American way of, of life. And, and so that's what they're doing. They're putting their thumbprint on every nation and in, in, in organization that they are party to, to be in service to them and their values. So what does that look like when they're engaging, for example, in diplomacy around the world? How do the Chinese use diplomacy to project that, uh, what you call suffocating um, Marxist uh, interest? Well, um, it depends on the country. So they sort of, it's like tailored to the country that they're that they're dealing with. Um, you know, in the United States, I mean, they've been, oh goodness, very clever at, they have these you know, Chinese organizations, uh, the Confucius Institutes have been in the United States, but it's not just those. They they have huge endowments um, with universities uh, where they have the ability to censor what can and cannot be said. 
Um, there, there have been days where, um, uh, again, Chinese students want to organize uh, days of remembering um, democracy movements in Tiananmen Square, um, or the Tank Man posters of Tank Man, the famous, you know, pro freedom depiction. Um, and uh, they will, the institution that's here in our country, in the United States, will will seek to put that down to say that it was insensitive. They play on America's sort of open wound about race. And they'll say that these are sort of stoking racial animosity towards Asian students. You know, they sort of understand that that's something that works here and, and people you know don't want to be accused of being racially insensitive. So that's what they they, they did to stifle speech here. Um, but in other countries, you know, it can be, uh, gosh, much, much more aggressive where, you know, they can, you know, you think of the Belt and Road Initiative where they're going into uh, African developing African countries and they they give them big dreams of great infrastructure that the Chinese can build. And then it's they they make these countries uh, so hooked, they owe them. They're in such great debt to China, they can't ever pay it back. And they basically just have to do whatever China wants. They're totally at their whims and mercy. Um, and so they can be much more aggressive there. And then, of course, there in that in that instance, it's just the, it's just the Chinese coming in and taking their natural resources and everything for, to serve the Chinese Communist Party. Um, and 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 they, the country just doesn't really have any say or ability to do anything beyond what what China permits them to do. So um, it's tailored. They're all over European ports, um, and and so you know to the extent that that that's, not, that's interesting. That's not something I've heard before. So China has been trying to buy up parts of CBB because they they're sly, and because the West has bought into this assumption that if you welcome China into the global trade and international community, these sort of systems that that China will simply get rich and won't be won't do any of that sort of old, messy, weird ideological stuff. They'll be happy to be fat and rich. And um, and of course, it's not been true. They've they've just sort of been quiet about the ideology and human beings, um, as Ashford scholars know, they're motivated by much more than just money. Um, we we have long his people have long histories and ties to ties to things that are deeply meaningful and um, and and so that the that the Chinese Communist Party never reformed never became a pro Western government and um, and so and anyway that so that but there is this idea this naivety that that you can still just do business like a normal country with China and work out for you but the Chinese have have bought um, access to these European ports. And I know that the topic of our conversation is China. I'll stick with you, but I'll just tell you just real briefly, tangentially, how it's affecting Ukraine is as we try to get weapons in, we have to be very into, into Ukraine, we have to be very careful because the Chinese Communist Party are all over European ports. And so we have to avoid where they're going because they're all of, they, they, they are, you know, the China is supporting Russia's effort in a variety of ways. And, and so we, we don't want the Chinese to see everything that we're doing. This this part, you, you said that it's interesting. It hasn't been brought up much. It hasn't been talked about much because part of the problem is, we're, again, they're, they're everywhere. They're so their tentacles are so far entrenched that it's it's almost like you don't want to speak too publicly about certain things unless you've got a solution for it. And so some of these problems have just not been very public yet. And there's going to be just a drip, 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 I think, in the weeks and years to come to see just how dangerous uh 
and vulnerable we've become, how dangerous China's become, how vulnerable we've become. It's interesting you said that about their tailoring their strategy very, um, very intelligently, really, uh, to to the particular countries. And I'm thinking of, for example, even in our country, uh, the way in which the controversial last few years, the way in which Hollywood movies, in fact, have been scrubbed oh, yeah. of any kind of negative reference, the the the, the big controversy over at the new Top Gun movie and whether or not there would be the uh, Taiwan defense patch on someone's jacket. Um, but this desire, this really uh, desire, you mentioned the NBA, not to offend China and in particularly the Chinese communist government officials. And we see that even in American popular culture like movies. I, I, I watched that. I watched Top Gun, you know, in the in the movie theater. And and maybe it's because I'm in a, like a pretty unusually sort of, you know, a lot of retired, a lot of veterans. And it was an older crowd. But it was just people were just cheering and they were emotional. It was one of the most pro-American films to come out of Hollywood. And of course, you did see the Taiwan patch um, on Matt's jacket. Uh, in in the in the um, movie, I don't think that Tom Cruise deserves a, a if the if the Nobel Peace Prize meant anything anymore, he deserves to have it just from that movie because I thought that it was, I thought, oh my goodness, maybe we really are, you know, we're not a declining republic, we still have a lot of fight left in us, um, and love of country, but it's gonna it's gonna take it's gonna take people, and by the way, that movie went over no surprise. I mean, it was extremely popular in Japan. Um, in in countries that are really under really feeling the, the 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 hot breath of the Chinese Communist Party on them right now, um, they loved that. You know, when I went to I, I visited Poland um, several months ago and um, had dinner with some 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 Polish folks there who said that you know they they were thrilled with Top Gun, and and the reason I, I find it so interesting is because it really is this you know it is the United States, including private citizens, not just our government, but. Hollywood directors, movie directors, uh, NBA individual athletes, are they really going to let a country that's hostile to the United States tell them what they can and cannot say, even if it seems like a small thing, just to have more money? I mean, that's a, you know, is, is, or, or are, is there enough American kind of, um, absolutely not, you don't tell me what to say, left in us. And, 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 and it's a big, it's a big, um, I think, signal to the rest of the world that the United States is not going to just slowly go into decline. We've got a lot of still love of country and fight in us um, to prevail. So, um, I yeah, if you the the Chinese will take as much as we seed, as much ground as we seed, they'll take it and they want more. And that's why it's so critical. Even on it seems like such a small thing, or they just don't want us to have a Taiwan flag. You got to have the Taiwan flag. You know, you 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 have to reject their censorship. I mean, it, it's. It is, um, I mean, it's shameful when you when you see some of these uh, owners of of sports teams make a statement about China's human rights problems, and then the next day retract it. You know exactly what what happened in that twenty four hours, and it's 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 it. They should be humiliated. It's it's a shameful thing. So um, anyway, I I was very encouraged by Top Gun. Um, the most recent Top Gun one, and I hope that 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 Hollywood sees that there's still a strong um, market and desire among the American people, a market here for for that kind of film to be made. So let me ask you: I'm getting some sense of the answer to this question already, but maybe lay it out a little more fully for our listeners. Since 1972 and America's opening to to China uh, with Nixon, what 
are, in your mind, some of the most important mistakes we've made in the China relationship that has allowed it to get to this point? We we just were, we just turned a blind eye to their lack of reform. I mean, if you're going to continue to enrich a country that is their system of government and the way they treat the human person inside their own country, I mean, that should have been clue after clue after clue that we were enriching our our enemies. So, you know, the welcoming welcoming them into the WTO, of course, is sort of the very famous big blunder. But that's only the sort of the, that's the big one that that enabled them to get rich really quickly to be able to. And it, it always kills me when these Chinese propagandists say, you know, look, China's rise from poor to wealthy great nations such in just a few decades demonstrates that democracy failed and that you can, you don't have to be a democracy to to be rich and successful, to which I say China would still be a poor country if they had not utilized the systems of capitalism and free market and trade um, and, and our view of what is fair and honest trade and business practices. They they simply would not have, but but they benefited from those ideas. But the problem is, as they got richer and they didn't reform, they started getting bolder in their refusal to follow the laws, the international laws and trade practices that we believe. So now it's like these small com- these small little companies that are still doing business in China. I mean, I've got, you know, friends I talk to out here who say it's just a major problem because they China just doesn't even acknowledge their patents, their intellectual property, just the integrity of the what they what these Americans have produced by with their minds, they produce China simply doesn't give them their royalties and just takes their intellectual property. And there's not anything that we can do about it. You know, you, you, you really get sideways if you don't have the relative strength economically and militarily, really to put it in most in the crudest terms, to make these countries comply. Um, so those are the big blunders. You know, at some point, somebody should have hit the brakes and said, this is not working well. We are enriching. I mean, I think about when Newt Gingrich went to Taiwan when he was speaker of the house, he could go, he could go visit Taiwan and their China could get really mad about it. There really wasn't anything they could do about it militarily, you know, but now I still am very defensive of speaker, then speaker Pelosi's trip to Taiwan. And now if if speaker McCarthy wants to go to Taiwan, that's the speaker of the house's prerogative to visit Taiwan. But now China can do something about that. They've got the reach and the military heft and it makes me really uncomfortable. So let that that last point is really interesting to me because it's a suggestion, I think, of your some of your ideas then. If those are the mistakes that we've made, how do we correct them? How should we act toward China? And I mean that both in the sense of policy and in the sense of posture. You want to you 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 want to speak softly and carry a big stick. That's just that's generally a good kind of posture, although sometimes it works well to also um speak loudly and carry a big stick with certain countries. That works too, as we saw during the Trump administration. Sometimes that does work to to good effect. Um, I think in the case of China, though, I think that we need to stop trying to to insist that there's still uh, some reason that we can reason with them and come to some sort of mutual understanding. And China is now, they've been very patient in investing in particular kinds of weapon systems to particularly threaten the United States in space, in the air, cyberspace, and uh, uh, on ground and at sea. Very, very intentionally, they've they've done that. And so um, 
I think at this point, it, it's going to take a lot of wisdom. But um, one, the United States can't continue to sort of, again, sort of cede ground to them. I think you have to some of these contests that the United States is having in space or, you know, we've seen with the spy balloon, you, you, you can't simply say, whoops, whoops, I hope you didn't mean to do that. And then kind of look the other way or just slap a couple of sanctions on a couple of PLA officers. You really do have to very loudly, um, not loudly is the right word, but you have to come down. There has to be a, a very clear, uh, consequence for that action that does cause some pain to China so that they don't, so that they can calculate, is that really worth it? Was that worth it to us to do that? We're, we've now had some kind of sanction here, or we've been called out in this way, in this diplomatic cable or in some way. We need to see more of that. I actually think the Biden administration has done a pretty good job over the last couple of weeks in particular. I've really noticed it pick up this week, which probably means China's being really bad. Um, but of being more public with allies and partners, just very carefully, sort of calmly explaining what, you know, that these the Chinese balloon fleet, for instance, is not just over the United States, that they've got another. Get other countries on the same page, understand the nature of the problem and the scope of the problem needs to happen. Um, but most fundamentally, and this gets back to the piece that we started with that you quoted, we must have a more robust military that is able to convince Xi Jinping in particular, but the Chinese Communist Party, the people around him, that we have the ability and the political will to make them regret attacking US interests, vital interests in the Pacific in particular. And that's that's the heart of deterrence. We need to have the ability and we need to be able to convince them that we'll use that ability to protect our vital interests. And of course, I'm talking about Taiwan, um, but not just Taiwan. Taiwan is is very important ge geopolitically for several reasons. We can talk about that or not. But um, I mean, it'll cause a global depression if 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 China takes Taiwan by force. So, um, but you you have to you have to we have to write that we have to write that. And so that's why I argue really need to be on a on a war footing um, because since the Cold War, we really gutted our 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 industrial capability to produce lots of weapons at scale. We, we divested of a lot of those categories of weapons and everyone's famous now through Ohio and the Midwest. Um, manufacturing has been shipped overseas. And a lot of those capabilities, even if they don't have direct military purposes, they are the things that go into military weapons. And so we need to be reinvesting with a strong sense of national purpose and urgency to, to get weapons immediately. They don't have, we don't have to reinvent the wheel. It's got, just gotta be a lot of missile, a lot of firepower. Um, of various ranges into the Indo-Pacific region to convince the Chinese that they will not prevail if they try to uh, really strike out at U.S. Um, preeminence. And that's with for open um, waterways for trade, for them to take that from us and be the ones that are controlling that. Well, that's those are some so examples of policy. Um, mm -hmm. uh, and even, I guess, to some say posture, right? You're saying the United States needs to be in a posture of, as you say in your piece, preparing for war so that we have to go for and making it clear to the Chinese, we'll fight you if we have to. Mm -hmm. And and your sense is the sense work in the Chinese mind that while they're Marxist Leninists, they're not crazy. Mm -hmm. They they think carefully and calculate carefully and decide whether or not it's worth it. What about another particular policy? The Trump administration, I think, not wanting forward with this. It was proposed before them. I'm thinking of the Trans-Pacific Partnership and the trading block that would be US and the rest of the Asian countries minus China. 
Some people have argued that would be an important step to promote U.S. relations and reduce the economic clout of China have opposed it. What do you think about that particular policy? I'm in favor of it in principle. I um I I think and I'm not this is not my my um deep level or did, you know area of expertise but my understanding was that the the Trump administration would have liked to have something like it but better proved sort of like what they did with NAFTA this idea of of a different of a of, a, of a, a better version of it because of the problems that were inherent to it. Uh, but yeah, so so if you think about it, you want policies that threaten pain and you want policies and architectures with our alliances that just increase our leverage and our power and decrease our dependence on them. And that's why, you know, I differ a little bit with some of the more, I don't want to call, they don't like to be called isolationists. They don't see themselves the way, but, but the more populist sort of America firsters to, to the point where they think that our, our, alliances are really just a headache right now, a headache and, and causing us heartburn and risk drawing the United States into a larger war that we can't afford. It depends, I would say, it depends. In, in the case of China, the United States cannot, we are, we need as many people in our orbits as we can at this point um, for trade purposes and security, the combinations of all of our, of our military forces. It's also why I didn't, I don't love the Biden administration's paradigm of democracy versus autocracy, because frankly, I'll take any country that doesn't want to be invaded by the Chinese who wants to be on our side, whether it's the Vietnamese, whether it's the Saudis and the Emiratis. Um, so that's that's kind of where I where I think we are right now is, you know, so it, it, it is you want you want to shore up our relative power so that we're stronger economically, so that we don't have things like farm critical antibiotics that are all made in China. You know, you got that stuff produced. I don't, it doesn't need to, I mean, it'd be great if it was all produced in the United States. I think it's unrealistic to get all that stuff here. I don't think China's going to sit back and watch happen. But um, but we can sort of group it in and in, into different deals and partnerships uh, to, to ship it to friendly countries, to India's and to the um to, to, to other countries sort of regionally, this is also why I think it's important you have a stabilized Europe. We need the Europeans, not, not to help us sort of directly militarily versus China, but you want them to take hold of policies that are conducive to U.S. interests versus China. Um, you know, everything to me is, you know, how, how are our policies with these countries in view of the priority that China is the paramount problem? Um, and so, yes, that's another powerful tool that we need to use is, is fostering good relationships, trade relationships that box out China and, and help these other countries flourish. Kind of entice them to say, look, the United States is still a better deal here. It's going to be good for you. It's going to be good for all of us over here. Just, you know, come with us and then we can do this. And I think that we should be very, very diligent and working really hard diplomatically to make that happen. We've been talking about the problems that China poses to the U.S., what about the to the problems that China has itself internally? So, for example, mm. some people have argued what we need to do is a kind of policy of containment in the way that you're outlining, you know, the, the Australians and the Indians and the Japanese and the Vietnamese and the Europeans together with us in containing China. And some people have argued if you contain China because they have allowed um, some call it capitalism, some private property, some market um, economics and market activity and entrepreneurship and sort of thing. Although obviously carefully circumscribed and limited in a way that would we wouldn't call free. There could be a 
disjunction between the Chinese people and the Chinese Communist Party. Eventually, the regime can't sustain itself. And that our job is to contain China until Soviet style, the system just can't prop itself up anymore and it falls apart. What do you think of that argument? It's possible to me. It's a little bit, I think that Americans love to try to put things in formulas and then, then, you know, sort of like a simple, if we can do this, then this will be the outcome. I think that things and human beings are just very complicated and dynamic. And so it, it is certainly possible. I wouldn't bank on it. I'm, I, I'm generally of the mind that training for very big outcomes that would give us some kind of permanent peace, whether that comes through this perhaps noble, but I think doesn't work out so well, sort of make the whole planet democracy, sort of the end of history, Fukuyama, um, hoping that that's the direction we go, I think is idealistic and naive and, and dangerous because you can hold on to those some, some sort of erroneous fundamental assumptions about human beings and nations. And but I think on the other side too, you know, this this idea that you can, yeah, that you can sort of put the squeeze on them and they'll sort of fall apart and then you'll have free democracy or at least something, something better than the Chinese Communist Party come up. I mean, it's possible. I was I was heartened during the zero COVID lockdowns in China, you did finally have some protests. And that's remarkable because those people are willing to die. If you're willing to protest Xi Jinping. And I don't think Americans still have, full, have a full picture of just how bad the repression is in China. I mean, during COVID, in the initial years of COVID, there were doctors and lab directors in China that tried to sound the alarm or at least tried to give more information about the strand of the virus, and they were disappeared. We don't know where they are. They just, they were disappeared, they were arrested, and now we don't, we don't actually, they never came back up again and resurfaced. So- And in fact, now, right, very recently, the U.S. Department of Energy came out with a report saying now, in fact, the leak theory seems to be not only plausible, but perhaps, in fact, what happened. Yeah, which to me, I thought was obviously what happened from the very beginning. And I had never understood why the sort of the, the the wet market, you know, eating eating bats any less offensive to, chi- to the Chinese government than, than to suggest that maybe they have a leaky lab. But um, but of course, it makes a lot of sense. And there were scientists in the United States who were saying that and who were downplayed. But there were little, but there were scientists inside China um, who sort of very interestingly, um, eyebrow raisingly, there was one scientist who somehow had a kind of um, not a vaccine, but a, an antidote, a medicine for COVID already developed. And, and he tried to, you know, to show that he had this and then he was disappeared. Because, of course, how would the Chinese government already have a, a, a medicine, a medicinal solution to to a virus if they didn't if it wasn't something that that, that was being worked on in the lab? All right. Then, Rebecca, given this this na- the nature of China as an adversary to the United States, what advice would you give to American citizens? I mean, I think the first thing would be um, delete TikTok, that TikTok app from your phone. I mean, that is just a that is directly a a tool of of surveillance from the Chinese Communist Party to pull your data. Um, It's also highly addictive. And it's just that they're pulling data on you um, that they can later use for all. We we don't know all the nefarious things they could use on you, but they're they're, they're tracking everything, every keystroke. 
but they're also inputting algorithms that are highly addictive. I mean, we um, one official, a US official called it um, a digital fentanyl, which I think is a is an apt description of that. So, um, you know, we it's not it, it can't it, it can't be a coincidence. Um, whenever you see that the kinds of algorithms that the Chinese um, app in the United States, actually there's a correlation between mental health problems with users in the United States, but the algorithms they use inside of China are to direct people towards uh, efficiencies in home care and mathematics and, and that kind of thing. And so that would be my one big thing. Um, and then any other kind of um, uh, digital device that you have, if they're, if it, you know, if, if it has some kind of tracking device, make sure that you you foreclose that and turn that off. Um, and you can do that on, on your phone. Any, any of these Chinese apps, just be very, very careful about your apps and where they come from. Another thing that I would just to encourage you, you know, buy American, see if you can. I know it's hard and inflation is high and not everybody has the income to be able to do this. But to the extent that you can send a signal and you can let your members of Congress know and your officials that do not want to be subsidized and you don't want the cheap goods, from China, that you want American-made products, I think that that is incredibly important. Um, and then support support those in government who are focused on um, the China threat problem, um, and express that this is something that yes, that America want to increase our sovereignty and decrease our reliance on China. Well, let me ask you this though. All right, th these are big questions that we've been talking about. Put okay. you're you're a, you are in the real world a, a civilian and policy advisor to the United States Department of Defense. Put yourself in the position of an advisor to the Biden administration. What's one immediate thing that the United States should do with respect to China that can um, advance our interests in this adversarial relationship with the Chinese? What's one policy or posture thing you would say we should do right now? I mean, I, I think absolutely just because it comes down to uh, military power, hard power, that you have to get that right. And so I would be advising them to very quickly, very, very quickly, because China does not want to fight the United States. They, I mean, they would like they would like to overcome the United States without having to do that. Um, but I think that they're willing if they if they think that they can prevail. And so I think time is not on our side. I think that we need to be rushing um, weapons into the Pacific, into Japan, Australia, um, Taiwan, very, very quickly. But I also think that's not the only thing. I think that it requires, um, I do think it is important to try to get, I mean, the voice of America, you know, letting these, the Chinese citizens who are in China to understand, I mean, they they do not know what's going on outside of, of China. They don't, they don't have um, access to information and they're extremely tolerant of, of the Chinese oppression. Um, I mean, you've got a billion, whatever that's a 1.4 billion people in China. That's incredible that you have that many people who are mostly compliant with the world's most sophisticated techno-authoritarian state. But but as the Chinese people have complied, the authoritarianism has gotten worse. And and so, you know, so you think of the younger people. I mean, I, I always think that, you know, that, that it should be a liability for the Chinese Communist Party and be a liability with a country of that many people. That um, that they can reject and stop complying in some way, and so I absolutely believe that the United States should be working very hard. And again, you have to think about China as an adversary to get to this point, because when you start talking about meddling in other people's inside their country, that's a different ball game. But when they are a true adversary who are really in a in a 
in a um, right now it's a cold war. I believe it is a cold war, truly, uh, between between China and the United States. That we don't want to go hot. You need to start pulling on the levers that we can to Xi Jinping. Xi Jinping's whole survival rests on him demonstrating that he is highly competent and can maintain peace and, and harmony inside China. And so I think that to the extent you can show that that he can't, that these people have agency, I think that's a very powerful tool for the United States. Yeah, fascinating. Um, we're going to have to continue this conversation as events in China develop. Uh, Rebecca, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us. Really interesting, uh, illuminating um, arguments and thoughts for us to consider on what might just be the most important or urgent uh, issue that the United States faces today. Rebecca Heinrichs, thank you so much for joining us today on The American Idea. Thank you for listening to this episode of The American Idea. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to subscribe at Apple Podcast, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts and leave a five-star review. If you want to learn more or get involved in Ashbrook's vital work, visit our website, ashbrook.org.